It's the 5th of March, 2021. This is the Room Now podcast, and hi, I'm Dr. Jack Cush, executive editor of RoomNow.com. Our title today is Pounds of Prevention, taken from the adage, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. What if we had pounds of prevention? Can you get pounds of benefit from big interventions like weight loss, lipid lowering, vaccination? Or do we really need the right drug at the right right time, maybe in the right patient? More on this to follow. But first, a word from our sponsor. The world of medical education has certainly changed, but you know what hasn't changed? That's right, Room Now Live. We're in our third year of doing both a live on-site meeting and a live streaming broadcast to the many who'd rather stay at home. So Room Now Live is a lot more than education your way. Listen in. At the end of the podcast, we'll tell you how so. So let's begin with a report about heart failure and the effects of hydroxychloroquine. We all know about the hydroxychloroquine fiasco of 2020, wherein it was touted as, one, the savior drug for COVID, and then the most dangerous cardiac drug ever invented, made no sense to any of us in rheumatology because we know hydroxychloroquine is probably one of the two or three safest drugs we use, provided appropriate monitoring and appropriate dosing. Well, a nice study from the Mayo Clinic looked at the risk of cardiac consequences to hydroxychloroquine, noting, of course, that RA, a great subject or a great population to study, has basically a twofold increased risk of heart failure. What happens when you add hydroxychloroquine to the mix? Does it augment the cardiac risk or the heart failure risk? In this nested case control study from the Mayo Clinic, they compared patients who had heart failure with RA and RA patients who did not have heart failure and then looked at things like hydroxychloroquine use, how long they were on hydroxychloroquine. And basically they showed that hydroxychloroquine or long-term hydroxychloroquine really fail to augment the risk of heart failure with an odds ratio is basically 1 or 0.96. Further affirming that you were right all along, it is a safe drug and you don't need to be doing uh, cardiac interventions and baseline EKGs and get out your calipers and measure QT intervals on everybody on hydroxychloroquine. Yeah, it was a bunch of nonsense. So, What's, is, it, is it nonsense for us to be concerned with comorbidities? Is it nonsense for us to be promoting statins in RA? Remember the Paul Ritker data about statins lowering CRP and statins having an anti-inflammatory effect. And hence, there were a number of studies that took place looking at, one, whether you could uh, lower the heart risk uh, in heart patients by using methotrexate. That didn't work. What if you gave RA patients statins and maybe their anti-inflammatory and lipid lowering potential would be beneficial to the cardiac risk but also maybe even lessen RA disease activity well that actually didn't work either there are very few studies in fact I'm author on one of them that says that that statins may affect RA disease activity but bottom line is statins really affect cardiac outcomes So in another case control study, population-based 20,000 RA patients, about 2,000 of them were actually taking statins. So they did sort of a a match cohort 
study uh, 1,893 on statins, 1,893 not on statins, and they basically showed that having RA and being on statins resulted in a 28% lower risk of mortality. That's great. Maybe more RA patients should be on statins. You have to assume these patients were on statins, were on it for a reason, like maybe hyperlipidemia. So these results, while they're great, probably reflect what we already know about statins, that statins lower cardiovascular risk, lower cardiac deaths in everyone, including RA patients who happen to have hyperlipidemia. Again, it's not so clear that statins will lower all-cause mortality in all RA patients, especially if not given uh, for, for uh, lipid-lowering potential. Another study on RA comes from the Nordic registers that looked at, there's a number of different uh, registries in RA from the Nordic countries that looked at what happens if you use, not as your, uh, as your first biologic, not a TNF inhibitor, but a non-TNF biologic? And then what happens after that? We do know that um, most of the time, TNF inhibitors are usually the first biologic that is used, and that the second biologic that can be used could either be another TNF inhibitor, where there's an incremental drop in response, but not necessarily so if you go to another non-TNF biologic. And so it makes sense to maybe use um, a non-TNF biologic as your second choice. What if the patient gets a non-TNF biologic as first choice? Well, these are registry data. We don't know why that choice was made. But nonetheless, when they looked at the patients who went on then to get a second biologic after they failed their first non-TNF biologic, they were switched to drugs like abatacept, rituximab, tocilizumab, and TNF inhibitors, with TNF inhibitors being the largest group. The bottom line is that retention levels of the secondary biologic were really quite poor. It was only 70% at six months, 50% at 12 months, only 30 to 40% of patients on their second biologic reach either low disease activity or remission. It was about 30% for all the biologics and about 40% if you took a TNF inhibitor, suggesting that maybe if you don't use a TNF inhibitor first time around, you should use it the second time around. But it basically says what we already know, that patients going on successive biologics, there is a drop-off in response rates. It's not a good thing to keep switching. Um, it sort of defines the non-responder and maybe the difficult RA patient. Another interesting analysis comes out about RA and seropositivity. We've talked about this in recent uh, months, uh, and this was a pooled analysis of 16 RA registries looking at uh, seropositive, seronegative patients, and they basically showed that seropositivity was associated with greater remission rates, higher levels of low disease activity state, and lower withdrawal rates. And most importantly, this was associated with the use of rituximab and abatacept, but not the TNF inhibitors. So that's been known before that um, rituximab responds better if you're seropositive. Uh, in this study, rituximab had the best response overall. Abatacept was somewhat behind rituximab. Um, the other drug that's been shown to have a better response with seropositivity has actually been JAK inhibitors. That was not in this analysis, but... This study did affirm what's been seen in many other studies before, which is that TNF inhibitors don't really um, uh, respond any better if you're seropositive or seronegative, seronegative for that matter. So 
I think that that's um, um, something that, again, you should keep in the back of your mind when it comes to prescribing because uh, the net result here is that maybe you get a 10% augmented response, uh, which is certainly better than flipping a coin. If you use a drug like rituximab or abatacept, preferentially in patients who are seropositive, and this study, it was for CCP, which I think is obviously better than rheumatoid factor, but being double positive, being maybe even more telltale. So a series of studies came out this week about the prevention with infections. I don't know if you noticed this year, and I'm sure all of you were like me, recommending strongly to your patients, get the influenza vaccine prior to the availability of the COVID vaccine. This way, when COVID comes around, if you get sick, we can sort of make influenza less of a culprit um, and focus maybe more on the the 800-pound gorilla in the room, which is the COVID uh, infection right now. Uh, consequently, influenza numbers are way down this year, gigantically down this year. And why? Well, it makes sense. Everything you've had to do to prevent COVID has actually also prevented influenza. And that includes social distancing, wearing masks, washing hands, all the mitigation procedures, the closing of schools and offices, the reduction in travel and airline travel and holiday travel. Um, as of January 31st, this flu season, there were only 150, in the United States, only 155 people hospitalized for influenza. Compared to last year, a year before this, when the number was like 8,700 that means it's down over 98% in the last year due to these procedures. So anyone who feels like all this nonsense that we're doing and the masks and the distancing and all, I mean, this is very strong numbers to say this stuff really does work. And it works on the old infection we worried about, influenza. It also works on the new one, the deadly one that's already killed a half million people and will probably kill a million people before it's all over. Yes, I'm advising everyone that the mitigation procedures need to go on, even if you're vaccinated, for all, all of 2021. Unfortunately, we're going to have we're, we're getting good at this. Um, but if you live in Texas, where they are now allowing you to run around without a mask, oh my goodness, don't move to Texas. Um, the interesting thing came out this week also that influenza vaccinations may hit a record high this season. Um, it's estimated that as much as I think it's uh, 70, 65% of patients will get the flu, influenza flu vaccine this year. That's up from last year where it was only 48%. Good news in managing infection. In Israel, they looked at the effects of the COVID vaccine in their population. So as of February in 2021, 84% of those over the age of 70 had received at least two doses. 50%, uh, I'm sorry, 10% of those under age 50 had received two doses. And when they looked at the need for mechanical ventilation, the, elder, the need for that in the elderly who had been vaccinated had declined 67% because of vaccination, showing that this really does work in the real world uh, when applied to real people, especially high-risk people like the elderly. Uh, let's move on to um, the Dan Bio Registry. It's a large registry in um, Denmark, uh, and they have a part of their registry devoted to psoriasis. In their psoriasis registry, they looked at 
the um, report of chronic pain and what that may mean. And I don't know why they went from chronic pain, maybe meaning psoriatic arthritis, maybe meaning a consequence to that. They went from if you have psoriasis and you have chronic pain, or do you have a higher likelihood of dying? I think that's a gigantic leap. And guess what? The answer was no, you don't. But I think maybe the take-home message for this is uh, that if you have chronic pain, um, you're not going to die. And it, But it also means that chronic pain associated with psoriasis may not be a reasonable surrogate symptom for psoriatic arthritis. Because it's clearly been shown that psoriasis patients who get psoriatic arthritis do have more untoward morbidity and mortality than just plain psoriasis alone. So in this study, the odds ratio was 0.99, no increase. What they did show that increased mortality amongst their psoriasis patients was exposure to steroids, having COPD, diabetes, and cardiovascular disease, things that you would have expected. Um, a lot of interesting data this week about systemic sclerosis. An epidemiology study looking at the prevalence of systemic sclerosis, 17 and a half cases per 100,000, and a pooled incidence of 1.4 cases per 100,000 patient years. The takeaway on this was that the incidence of systemic sclerosis was five times more prevalent in women than men. Uh, the more we can understand systemic sclerosis, the better we can treat it. Oh, if only we had treatments for systemic sclerosis. But wait, yesterday, the FDA approved a new drug for systemic sclerosis. Yes, it happened. We talked about it a few weeks ago that things were happening, and, and sure enough, it has happened. Genentech has announced that its drug, Ectemra or Tocilizumab, has been FDA approved for use in systemic sclerosis patients with ILD for the purposes of slowing the rate of decline in pulmonary function in such patients. What you need to know is that the drug is approved at its usual dose, the sub-Q dose of 162 milligrams I'm sorry, um, per week. Um, and, and it's being given for preventative measures. By the way, it is not approved for IV dosing. This, this particular uh, recommendation was based on a sub-analysis, uh, a, a post hoc sub-analysis of those with ILD in the FOCUS study. Uh, as you know, the folk, both the FOCUS study and the FASCINATE study, two phase three studies of systemic sclerosis did not prove its benefit as far as retarding skin progression by modified Rodman skin scores, but it did show improvement in pulmonary function. Actually, not improvement, no change in pulmonary function if you were on tocilizumab compared to progression if you're on placebo. For this reason, this is now approved. We now have two drugs approved for systemic sclerosis and its associated ILD. The first one was the pill, Nintedinib, uh, which has been out there for about a year now. And now this is the first biologic, tocilizumab, to be approved. Tocilizumab now has six uh, FDA approvals, RA, uh, polyarticular JIA, giant cell arteritis, um, um, name that tune, uh, systemic JIA, um, the cytokine release syndrome, and now systemic cirrhosis, interstitial lung disease. Our last report uh, is about weight loss and gout. So this is a nice study because it looks at the influence of what happens with weight um, over a span of time in adults, um, and specifically looking at um, incident 
gout as it might occur in four different groups. Those who had normal weight throughout the observation time. And by the way, this data was taken from the NHANES survey set. Uh, this is a survey of the U.S. population backed up by some clinical data. And uh, they, I think they followed 11,000 adults during this period of observation, 320 people developed gout uh, and what they look again four populations those who had no change those went from a normal weight to an obese weight those who went from obese to losing weight and those who were always um, uh, at a high um, um, level of BMI and what they show what that the highest risk of incident gout was seen in those who were stable obese meaning they were always high as far as their body weight throughout the observation period with almost a doubling of the risk of developing gout, a hazard ratio of 1.84. Um, and that actually significant weight gain in this group was also a risk factor. They showed that losing weight was not associated with risk. That's not surprising. Um, they showed that if you stayed as a normal BMI person, there was an overall reduction in the risk of developing gout by as much as 33%. Again, we know that weight and weight reduction is very important in gout management. Hell, it's very important in the management of all of our arthritis and, for that matter, all of systemic autoimmune inflammatory disease. So, a pound of prevention by losing many pounds or keeping those pounds down obviously has significant benefits as far as avoiding significant disease in the future. That's it for the podcast. Tune in to more in the future. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. We know you're going to enjoy Room Now Live 2021. It's going to be held on the 20th and the 21st of March in beautiful downtown Fort Worth. This meeting is unlike any other because we have pre-learning, learning, and post-learning. We have shorter, more concise lectures. It's really hard to give short lectures. Our faculty are struggling, but they're doing it because we know it's the better way to learn. There's more time for discussion. We are going to spend at least 30% of our total programming time on Q&A between you, the audience, and our expert key opinion leaders who are being brought in because of their excellence in education and research and leadership in rheumatology. This is going to be a great virtual experience. It's going to be an even better experience for those who attend live. Um, our meetings are unique in that we have these really short lectures called step lectures. They're meant to be like TED Talks, somewhat inspirational, somewhat of a mini lecture. Uh, we hope that you'll join us and join the discussion. This is a meeting designed to change your mind and change your practice. Great rheumatologists like us go to great meetings like this.